Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So my wife, Sarah, and I have been married for 14 years, going on 15 years, and we discovered early on in our marriage that um, it was probably a wise thing for us to find a hobby that we could do together that we were both terrible at. Because uh, up to that point, we had tried various things and discovered that, you know, tennis, biking, um, certain board games, things like that, that uh, one of us would be really good at that thing and the other one would be absolutely terrible. And so it actually wasn't enjoyable. Uh, We're both a bit competitive and so we wouldn't enjoy it. And so we thought, well, maybe we should find something that we're both terrible at because if there's one thing that's better than succeeding together, it's failing together. That's a little marriage tip for you. Um, And so one day as I'm walking back from the train to our apartment in Chicago, I'm I'm walking by this, this this store called, it was, it was called Pearl Arts and Crafts. It's no longer there. But as I'm walking by there, I go, ah, I bet we're both terrible at painting. Now, we had never painted before, but I'm like, surely. Like, since this has never come up in our relationship, it's very likely that we're both bad at it. So walk in, I buy all the, you know, I buy a bunch of paints. I buy like the palette knives, palettes, canvases, brushes, all this stuff. Take it home. You know, I'm lugging this back like a half mile to our apartment. And then that night, uh, we enjoyed some time painting together. And though it was fun and it was relaxing, there was no conflict because we were both terrible at it. We discovered that we're terrible at painting, right? Now, the reason that we're bad at painting was not for a lack of resources. Now, I didn't spend, I didn't buy the whole store, you know, but I bought enough. We had all the colors. We had the knives. We had the brushes. We had the canvases. We had the palettes. We had all the things that someone would need if you're going to do a mediocre painting. So the reason why we were terrible at it was not because of a lack of resources. The reason why we were terrible at it was because we lacked the expertise. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how to approach it. We didn't, I, I like to think I'm, I'm somewhat artistic, but not in the painting realm, right? It wasn't because of a lack of resources. It was a lack of expertise. Have you ever noticed how people who are masters in their craft can do a lot with very little, while amateurs can do very little with a lot of resources, right? It's kind of like the the musician who blames their instrument for sounding bad. It's like, nah, it's just you. Like, (laughs) Like, good musicians can take mediocre instruments and make them sound good, right? Like, Good artist, it, it, would, it would be like if you, if you gave Sarah and I, you know, uh, blue, yellow, and green, and said, hey, you need to paint a masterpiece that is so good that people will be talking about this decades, even centuries later. We would look at you and go, you could give us all the colors in the world and all the time on the planet, and you're not going to get that. But give blue, give yellow, give green to someone like Van Gogh and you'll probably get something very close to the starry night. Because he's a master at his craft. And what you'll notice in the Bible 
is that time and time and time again, that God has a way of fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely of ways. God has a way of fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely ways. God is like the master painter where you only, you only give him, you give him no colors and you get a masterpiece. That is creation, isn't it? But fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely of ways. Now, last week we began our Advent series and we saw that, and we saw the promise that God made just three chapters into our Bible. That though Adam and Eve had messed everything up, they had sinned against God, they had introduced sin into the world, they'd messed everything up, that God promised that one day he would crush Satan through the seed of Eve, through a child from the woman. And in doing so, that this, that this one who was to come from Eve would, would free the world from sin, would free the world from brokenness, would free the world from death, and would bring in a new creation. What's, what's interesting in this is that it's, as I, was, as I was studying through this this week, I, I'd never seen this before, where it's amazing, isn't it, that it's actually through hostility that God brought about peace. You say, what do you mean? Because God's promise was that he would bring hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It was through hostility that God brought about peace. 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 That's kind of a popular word right now. It's something that anyone in their right mind, if you stop them, you know, on the street and you say, uh, would, would peace on earth be a good thing? Anyone who, you know, you anyone you shouldn't run away from would probably say yes, right? It's like if Christmas had a tagline, it would be, it would be like Christmas, peace on earth. We're kind of seeing it pop up in lawns and, and in advertisements and in, you know, shopping centers and things like that. Peace. We all want peace. Maybe if you're an NBA fan, you remember a few years ago, I think it was in 2011, Ron Artest. He's, he's since changed his name to something else. But at the time, he changed his name to Meta World Peace. Right? And you go, what a stupid thing to do. But the reason was, someone from the LA Times asked him, what? hey Ron, hey Meta, why did you change your name to Meta World Peace? And he said, well, it's because when fans get mad at me, they can't turn around and say, I hate world peace. <laughs> Which I go, okay, maybe that's not as dumb. Like, that's a little way to avoid some, some criticism there, right? Like, we all want peace. And God promised to bring a serpent crusher into the world, to crush Satan and bring peace. We all long for peace. What an extravagant promise made in Genesis chapter three. That though Adam and Eve, you had messed everything up, I'm going to bring about a serpent crusher. I'm going to bring about peace. But then fast forward by the time we get to Genesis 12, which is our passage for this morning, by the time we get to Genesis 12, between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12, by the time we get there, we're left asking the question, is that still the plan? God, is your promise still good? Right? Because what happens between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 is you could say less than great. 
Because as if the fall in Genesis 3 was bad enough, what you have just eight verses into Genesis chapter 4 is you have Cain, the first son born of Adam and Eve, killing his brother Abel. Just eight verses in to Genesis chapter 4. And then in Genesis chapter 6, you have God shortening the lifespan of just people because of the greatness of their sin on the earth. And so God says, because of your wickedness, uh, all of you are no longer going to live as long as you once lived. That's Genesis chapter six. And then in Genesis chapter seven, it gets so bad that God floods the earth because of humanity's wickedness and he kills everyone except for Noah's family. And then fast forward after that, after the floodwaters recede, after the rebuilding efforts have, you know, have finished in Genesis chapter 11, you have the humanity that has now come from the family of Noah. You have that humanity now gathering in a place called Shinar to build a great big tower. Maybe you know it as the Tower of Babel. And they build this great big tower to make a name for themselves. And what's crazy about this is that as they build the Tower of Babel, notice that if you read Genesis chapter 11, they build it out of oven-fired bricks. And you go, big deal. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because normally the way that they made bricks was by drying them in the sun. But when you wanted a really, really sturdy structure, you went through the energy to dry them in the oven. And not only that, they stick these bricks together at the Tower of Babel with, with a substance called bitumen. And what bitumen was, was it not only was it sticky, but it also made things waterproof. Interesting, huh? Right after a worldwide flood, you have humanity gathering in one place to build a tower for themselves, to exalt themselves against the God of heaven, and they want to make it as sturdy and as waterproof as they possibly can. As if to say, God, even you can't knock this down and even you can't flood this out. That's Genesis chapter 11. And so you see all of this. You see all of this happening and you go, God, you made this promise back in the beginning, but now everything has become a big flaming pile of garbage. Like, is the promise still on? Is this still the plan? It's kind of like when you tell your kids, um, hey, tonight we're going to go get ice cream. And then for some reason, when you tell your kids that, something switches in their mind where they become the most unpleasant, disobedient people on the planet. Maybe this is just my kids, okay? So... No one's nodding. You have perfect kids. Love it. Uh, praise God, maybe. Um, that's, you know, and it's like, it's like, oh my word. As a parent, I go, hmm, is that still the plan? Are we still going to do this? Like, like, since I made the promise, everything's gone wrong. Me, I go, hmm, the plan is still, the plan is up in the air at this point, right? And we're left asking that, God, with all the murder, with all the strife, with all the deceit, with all the injustice, with all the idolatry, it makes all the sense in the world that we would get to this point and ask, is God's promise still going to happen? And if it is, how is that promise going to come about? What is the plan to bring about that promise? And then in Genesis chapter 12, we get this guy named Abram, or we'll call him Abraham. Eventually his name is changed in Genesis 17 to Abraham. Maybe you've heard of Abraham. Maybe when you think of Abraham, if you've heard of him, you might get thoughts of this like saintly old man who follows God and obeys him and lives a life worthy of being immortalized in stained glass, like saintly old Abraham. You might think of the times that that he's included in the description that it's like it's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, right? That's kind of like a big deal. 
But what we know of Abraham is that while Abraham is esteemed, like is lifted up in scripture, that unlike Noah, who found favor with God because of his righteousness, Abraham actually came from a family of idolaters. We see this in Joshua chapter 24. It says this, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. So here we are, end of Genesis 11, beginning of Genesis 12, wondering if God's promise is still good, and it, if, if it is still good, how is that going to happen? And God says, yep, the promise is still on. In fact, my plan is to move the promise forward with this guy. Pointing to Abraham. And you look at Abraham and you go, that guy? He's like, yep, this guy. It would be like, uh, it would be like you're in the fourth quarter. You have two seconds left. It's fourth and long. It's like Hail Mary time, Right? And the coach turns around, he's like, get me the concession stand guy. And you're like, like the nacho guy? He's like, yeah. It's like, wait a second, that guy? Like, this is how you're going to win the game? And that's what God does with this guy named Abraham. Abraham, really? That guy? Yeah, that guy. The idol worshiper? Yeah, the idol worshiper. And you go, okay, that was unexpected. But maybe, like, like but that doesn't, doesn't Abraham kind of like get cleaned up, you know? Like, doesn't after God calls him, he goes on to do amazing things. He's, he's incredibly faithful and he's incredibly obedient. He's a man of faith. He walks from, like God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Like, isn't it after God calls him, he becomes this saintly stained glass old man? Nope. Because right after God calls him, right after God chooses him, even though God promised to bless him, even though God promised to make him great and turn him into a great nation and to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, even after all of that, he and his wife Sarah go into Egypt. Abraham gets, gets scared of the men in Egypt because his wife is relatively attractive. And so he says, hey, pretend that you're my sister so that the guys don't kill me. And he gives his wife away to save his own butt. And he doesn't only do that once, he does it twice. He's happy to give his wife away to another guy if it means that he'll be safe. And you know, yeah, that's pretty rough, I guess. But it gets worse. Because even though God explicitly promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that his wife Sarah would be the one to bear the, the promised child that would bring about the, the, the coming Messiah. Even though God promised Abraham that that is how that was going to happen, even though Sarah was barren, she couldn't have kids. That was the, one of the miraculous parts about this. God promised that to him. Under the instruction of his wife Sarah, which this seems messed up, right? To, to speed along this whole like having a child process, Sarah says, well, I can't have kids. God isn't working fast enough. So how about you sleep with my slave Hagar and you have a kid with her? And maybe that's the way that this is supposed to be brought about. And Abraham, just like Adam in the garden, who's kind of like, I don't know, the wife told me to do it. He does it. And not only that, then after Hagar actually gets pregnant, which was the point, 
Sarah gets all jealous of her and Abraham allows Sarah to abuse Hagar to the point that Hagar runs away. Now you might say, why are you telling us all of this? I'm telling you all of this because lest we start to admire Abraham too much, lest we start to elevate him to some kind of stained glass saintly status that we, could, that we could possibly never achieve, lest we do that, the details of Abraham's life, both before God called him and after God called him, the details of Abraham's life should regularly remind us that Abraham was made of the same sin, sinful stuff as we are. But God has a way of fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely of ways. You see, God was under no illusion that Abraham was anything special in and of himself. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know that because in the passage that was read for us this morning, notice in God's promise to Abraham, Notice who is doing all the work. Notice this. So verse 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. So you can add the you. Like, so here's, here's what Abraham's doing. You go out from your land, from your father's house. Okay, that's what you're doing. And then look at everything else. To a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse, who curse you. I will, I will, I will. Like here's idolatrous, here's adulterous, here's deceptive Abraham. And God says, through this guy, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Not because he is great, but because I will do all these things. God has a way of fulfilling his most extraordinary promises in the least likely of ways. I might go, how? How in the world could all the peoples of the earth be blessed through this one guy? I mean, by this point, Abraham is, is probably well into his 70s, right? Like, it's not as though he and his wife are going to single-handedly populate the whole earth. I mean, even if they tried, you don't have time. How is he going to do that? How will the nations be blessed through Abraham even though many will be physically unrelated to Abraham? How will that happen? Well, fast forward many, many, many years. In the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, we get this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. God has a way of fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely of ways. How could all of the people of the earth be blessed through Abraham? It's because from Abraham would come one, would come a true and greater Abraham, who like Abraham was sent from his father's heavenly home to a foreign land. A true and greater Abraham, who is a true ruler over a greater nation, who is a true king of a heavenly kingdom, 
one whose name is highly exalted, that, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that through Abraham would come about a true and greater Abraham who brings blessing to those who bless him. Jesus Christ, the serpent-crushing seed of Eve, son of David and son of Abraham, is this great, he is this greatly anticipated blessing to the nations. You see, what we have in Abraham, what we have in Abraham is that God chooses the ungodly. That God chooses the ungodly, the lowly, the unstable, the imperfect, the unlikely of the world to bring about his plan of redemption so that he could bring good tidings of great joy to the ungodly, the unstable, the lowly, the unsuspecting, the least likely of this world. So you ask, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us in 2022? If that was God's plan to accomplish his promise then, what does this mean for us now? Two simple things, two things. First, when it looks like all is lost, remember Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, when it looks like all is lost, when it looks like nothing is going right, when it looks like there is no hope to be had in this situation. When things continue to get worse and worse, when it looks like there's no hope left in your life or left in our world, God is still active. God is still moving. God is still faithful to fulfill his promises. And maybe, just maybe, the reason why you can't see it the reason why you can't see that he is still working is because God has a way of fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely of ways. Maybe the reason why you can't see it is because you're looking for God to do what you would do. You're looking for God to act how you would act. You're looking for God to, to fix the situation the way that you would fix the situation. You're looking for God to do what you would expect. And while you're doing that, is it possible? Could it just be that God is in the process of doing what you would least expect? And so while you're looking over here, waiting for him to act, waiting for him to move, wondering why, God, why aren't you doing anything in this situation? Why aren't you doing anything in my life? Why aren't you doing anything in our world? You're just looking over here that God is working over here. Outside of your peripheral vision, Just because you can't see it, and just because things don't make sense, doesn't mean that God isn't working. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. You see, is it possible, if God is God, is it possible that God knows things that you don't know? And he's also doing things that you can't see. So the first thing we see from God fulfilling his plan through a person like Abraham is that when it looks like all is lost, God is still working. What's the second thing we see? The second thing we see is that if God can choose and use someone like Abraham, God can choose and use someone like you. 
If God can choose and use someone like Abraham, God can choose and use someone like you. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you think that this whole, like, following God, Christianity thing, like, that that's for people who kind of have their act together, maybe people who have kind of, like, cleaned up their lives, or they've gotten their life together, they're cleaned up enough to be good enough. Like, maybe you're here this morning, maybe this is, like, the first time you've been in church for a long time, maybe you're just here to watch some baptisms, right? And you're just kind of like, you're here to support the people that you love and you go, you go, man, I'm glad that they've kind of like, they've leveled up, you know, they've got their life cleaned up, I guess. And that's what this little baptism thing means. Like maybe that's what you think Christianity is, is it's for clean, nice, tidy people. But take it from Abraham, an idol worshiper, from a family of idol worshipers. Take it from Abraham that you aren't so messy. You aren't so broken. You aren't so far gone. You aren't so unspectacular that God doesn't want you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In fact, it's precisely the messy It's precisely the broken. It's precisely the far gone. It's precisely the unspectacular of the world that God does want. Why is that? Why does God want unspectacular people? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. Here's what he says. Why does God want unspectacular people? Here's why. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. And why does he do that? So that no one may boast in his presence. Why does he do this? You see, God chooses the weak and he uses the weak. God chooses those who don't know a lot. And he uses those who don't know a lot. God chooses the unlikely. He chooses the unassuming. He chooses those that you would least expect so that when it's all said and done, so that when he has done what he's going to do, so that when he has fulfilled his promise in and through unlikely people like us, he does it so that there would be no question about who gets the glory. He chooses unlikely people to make himself look good and to invite us into a joy that we could find nowhere else than in following him. If you aren't yet a Christian this morning, here's what we see from Abraham, is that you aren't so bad that God doesn't want you. But here's what's also true, is that you aren't so bad that God doesn't want you, but you also aren't so good that you don't need God. See, some of you, some of you think, well, Christianity is for people who have, you know, who have their life together, or that that is what helps them get their life together. That's some of you. You might think, "I'm, I'm too messed up to come to God. Some of you, See Christianity simply as a means to like kind of get your life in a good spot. And since your life might already be in a good spot, you go, well, then I don't really need God anyway. 
But here's what the Bible says about even those of us who are cleaned up. It says that though you may be rich in this life, maybe your finances are good. Bank account's fine, stable job, got my retirement, it's on its way. That though you may be rich in this life, that apart from Christ, you are spiritually poor. That though you may be cleaned up, maybe, maybe not, you know, maybe physically you're cleaned up, that, that's great. Like, <laughs> may not be physically messy, but your life kind of might be cleaned up. But apart from Christ, you are actually a spiritual mess before God. You might even be a nice person. You go, I live in the Midwest. I live in Iowa. I live in Northern Iowa. That's like the nicest of the nice places in the Midwest, isn't it? We're almost in Wisconsin. <laughs> like, they go to apple orchards for recreation. How much nicer can you get, you know? Like, I'm a nice person, right? I'm, I'm good there. I mean, God, how could God make me more nice? I'm a nice person. Here's what's true, though, is that apart from Christ, you are a raging enemy against God. You aren't so bad that God doesn't want you, and you aren't so good that you don't need him. Receive forgiveness for your sin and receive reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ this morning. You say, how do I do that? Oh, it's so simple. Say to God, God, I am done trying to clean myself up. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I can't do anything about it. I receive your salvation in Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross and how he rose again from the dead. Something like that. It's not a formula. Acknowledge your need before God. Acknowledge that to God and ask him to save you apart from yourself. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, you will be saved. Or maybe, maybe you are a Christian this morning. And you go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, I've done that. I believe in Jesus, like all that stuff, right? I'm just not one of those super Christians. Like I'm a Christian, but I'm a regular Christian. Like I don't do crazy things. I don't, I don't do spectacular things for God. Like, I'm not, I'm not that person who's like, who you hear about. Doing cra- I, I got a normal job, normal house, normal car, normal life, relatively normal kids. At least we're working on it. Like, I'm just a normal person. What do I really have to offer the kingdom of God? But don't you see That's exactly the way that God works. Time and time again. That's exactly the way that God works. See, you see, it's totally upside down. The way that God works is totally upside down from the way that we would expect things to work. You go, super Christians do crazy things for God. Super Christians are used greatly by God. And then you read the Bible and it's like, pay close attention. 
all of these big names, we just walked through Abraham. We could do, we could do the same for Noah. Yeah, God saved the human race through his family. He was the only family to survive the flood. And then like not long later, he's naked and drunk in his tent afterwards. Kind of a weird after party for what God has just done, right? You have Solomon, wisest guy on earth, a thousand wives. That's pretty foolish, right? David, Jacob, all these guys, they do, though we may elevate them in our minds, they have a track record of not ending well. This is exactly how God works. Through an unlikely man, a guy like Abraham, through an unlikely man to an unlikely couple, you know that Mary and Joseph were incredibly poor. From an unlikely man to an unlikely couple in an unlikely place, Jesus was not born in a castle for kings, but he was born in a stable for cows. Unlikely man to an unlikely couple in an unlikely place in an unlikely way that he would bring about the salvation of the world, that he would crush the head of the serpent by crushing his own son in an unlikely way to an unlikely people, you and me. The regular, unspectacular, nothing to write home about, sinful people. You see, if God chooses and uses people like Abraham, he can choose and use someone like you. So take it from Abraham. Don't count yourself out. Because God has a way of fulfilling his most extravagant promises in the least likely of ways. Let's pray. God, it's crazy that you work in the way that you do. We so often don't see it. We so often don't understand it. And we acknowledge this morning that your ways are higher than our ways. Than our ways, Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That even your foolishness is greater than the wisdom of any person. And so God, this morning, we worship you because you are faithful. We worship you because you are good. And I pray that this morning, that anyone who is far from you, who has not yet received salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. God, that you would meet them where they are at, that they would see their need, that they would confess their sin to you and receive salvation this morning. Because you choose unlikely people and you use them in unlikely ways. Oh God, would you help us to walk faithfully as we continue to gaze upon your faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.